0: You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor, Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had
1: learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Today, Dan and I are talking with Dr. Heidi Sauter, who is a licensed psychologist and founder of the Enriched Relationship Center of Colorado, which is a group practice. She's a presenter, educator, and sex therapist for couples and adults.
2: Just want to welcome you, Heidi. Um, it's I'm glad to have you here because this is actually, as a lawyer working with mental health practitioners, the, the legal and ethical and compliance side of working with couples and how you do it ethically comes up a lot. So Really grateful to have you here today.
1: I'm happy to be here. So you know that I'm personally really excited to have you here because we met at the University of Michigan's uh, Sexual Health Certificate Program, and we've had the opportunity to collaborate on a few other projects. So I'm really excited to have you here today. One of the reasons that we wanted to invite you to talk with us is that you are a Gottman Level 1 trainer, and you really love couples therapy, and you also do sex therapy. So what are some of the unique legal or ethical issues that come up when working with couples? Well, so that you mentioned the Gottman connection is one of them.
3: Lots of times what I run into when I'm trying to find other couples therapists to refer into is that people will say, oh, I do Gottman uh, method therapy. And I say, OK, great. What, what kind of training have you done? And they say, oh, I read the seven principles for making marriage work. Hmm. Well, that's a book that a great number of the people who come and see me have already read. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't speak to any advanced training, supervision in the treatment of couples or alternate relationships than just uh, people who are trained in therapy.
1: I am so so glad you said that. That's not the answer that I expected, but I'm so glad uh, that you brought that up because I think that that's a really important topic. It's important that...
3: uh, you are able to competently treat the people who are coming in to see you. And so that is one of the basic ethics is the competency to treat. And so it means that in seeing couples that you really are saying, I have advanced learning and supervision in areas, uh, including domestic violence, violence and abuse, things like attachment or uh, for some people, family law that you're really saying, okay, there's, there are other issues that come up. Uh, Infidelity is one that comes up frequently. And so you have understanding of betrayal and the healing of betrayal that looks different in a couple's context than in an individual context.
1: And Dan and I literally just finished recording a podcast episode. That's not even out yet on the topic of competence, didn't we?
2: Yes. And I was actually just about to reference that.
1: On that note, since we literally just recorded that episode, can you say more? about recommendations for people who want to offer couples counseling to make sure that they are adequately trained and practicing within their scope of competence?
3: I would say do research for yourself on methods of therapy that are presented out there and how validated those methods are. And when you look at what studies have been done to show that the method is uh, helpful, is it helpful for specific parts of the population uh, or a lot of the population, some of the population you treat, not others. And so that way you can truly give informed consent saying, here's the method I'm practicing. Here's the research that backs its efficacy. And then here's the populations that's been studied on. Or if you're seeing somebody who it hasn't been studied on, which is also not unusual, then you're saying, hasn't been studied on uh, this specific population, but we're generalizing out to you.
1: Yeah, and and just the other day, I literally received a phone call from someone who said, I'm looking for these two specific things and I need someone who's really trained in them because there are a lot of providers whose profiles say that they do this thing that don't really have training in that thing.
3: Yes, I come up against this with treating uh, open relationships, polyamory specifically, and that I will say, Uh, Gottman method therapy has not been studied in polyamorous relationships. And so I don't know how that looks. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how it looks to have two people in the room versus three or four people in the room. Mm -hmm. I don't know Mm -hmm. that. Yeah,
2: One of of the ethical issues I see that comes up a lot is the question working with practitioners and attorney is when it comes to couples versus family therapy, what can you build to insurance? What you can't build insurance. And that also then bleeds into uh, I don't it bleeds, but kind of colors into the area of in which who owns the records and, and things like that. But, you know, do you find that as work with couples, does that question come up a lot as, you know, who is the the primary? Who's how do you build this insurance? Or, you know, can you build this insurance? Should you build this insurance? That, that type of question.
3: That type of question comes up a lot. Yeah. And what I try to do is in my informed consent, make that uh, very spelled out. That, there is the client is the relationship between the two people, let's say. Mm So that's the, that's the client. Mm -hmm. Now, if anybody wants the record, both people have to sign. And that's true. Whether they want to consult with their individual therapist, Mm -hmm. both people have to sign. Uh, If this uh, record is subpoenaed, both people have to sign. Now, if people want to bill insurance, then one of those individuals is selected as the patient has mm-hmm. to meet a major medical, not just relationship distress. Right. And that's discussed in those opening sessions.
2: I liked that you mentioned the subpoena issue because that comes up pretty frequently um, in terms of clients. When you have couples who are splitting up and there's children involved and yeah, and attorneys get involved and the issue of subpoenas comes up a lot. So, and a lot of times I'll get a call from a client, a client a practitioner who's panicking oh, I got a subpoena. And I'll say, flip to the last page, does it say judge or attorney who issued the subpoena? And most of the time it says attorney. And at that point I said, well, have you gotten the client's consent to release the records? No, I haven't. And then the answer is pretty much then you can't release the records. But that, I'm glad you raised that because that issue of having both signatures, both approval to release the records is a really big one. And that comes up a lot.
3: It comes up a lot in just the practice of where is my information going to be released? In, in the court situation, I try to make it, again, really clear in the informed consent of my role. My role mm-hmm. is not to take a side or to testify for either one of you. Mm-hmm. My role mm-hmm. is to be there for your relationship. Should you choose to uh, end the relationship or end therapy, I, I don't want to get involved in, in a court proceeding. And mm-hmm. so I can try to make it pretty clear that I, I, I'm not somebody who uh, just comes in and, and takes a side and then testifies in court.
1: I like that line that you just said, I'm there to show up for your relationship.
2: And I'm glad you also mentioned the informed consent because that's one of the things I often talk to clients about as well is the first, in my opinion, one of the first things you can do properly to kind of set the boundaries and set, you know, the understanding of the clients of what is happening and how it should happen is the informed consent. And I always tell people, you know, what you want the client to know about how this is going to work, that's what needs to be in your informed consent. So I'm glad you emphasized that because I think that's a really important point.
3: The informed consent, unfortunately, becomes a book, lengthy.
4: It does. <laughs> and,
3: uh, and when I add things like Gottman Methods, which has different components and aspects. So in my, my informed consent, it's very clear, hopefully, that assessment in Gottman therapy is different than intervention therapy. So it says, all right, here are the steps to assessment. Here are the steps to, to therapy. Here's how the termination of therapy and so hopefully it means that we start off on the same page. And if not, we can look back and say, okay, where, where was the misunderstanding on what was supposed to happen and when?
2: Yeah. And that's what I emphasize as a client, as I say, it's called informed consent for a reason because you want them to be informed. Right. And that's the whole point is that a client, and I've had this happen where a practitioner will come to me and say, you know, and it actually was with a couple. Oh, well, they're saying that he wasn't, didn't, didn't tell them this. And I said, did you, what is your informed consent saying? We flipped through the right page and sure enough, there it is. And so we were able to go back to the client and say, you know, look, here's the, the condition. Here's what we talked about. And here's, you know, you signed here. It was really useful. So again, I, I just think that's such an excellent point to how important informed consent is from the get-go.
1: Yeah. And along those lines, one of the topics that comes up in couples counseling is whether or not you as the therapist are going to keep secrets and depending on your training, um, There are people who have different opinions on that, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you approach that particular topic with clients. It's a difficult one in doing uh, Gottman training and practicing
3: that model. Their model is to not keep a secret. In doing school at the University of Michigan with you, Melissa, it was clear that most providers in sex therapy keep a secret. And so that's more of the standard of care. Mm -hmm. So frankly, I'm conflicted. Part of uh, my decision in doing it is when I say I'm offering a certain method of therapy, I'm, I'm hugging that method pretty tightly. Mm-hmm. And so, if I'm if I'm going to decide to do something different, I I'm going to have to spell that out and give a justification of why that's different than the model I'm offering. Um, so currently, I I say the individual sessions, which are offered at the assessment phase, are not mm-hmm. secret. Now, if something, uh, if someone confides something in me, that gets brought into therapy. Mm-hmm. And frankly, it doesn't keep people from telling me secrets. People will tell me secrets and say, "I don't want it brought in," and I'll say, "Well, then you can't start therapy with me," because that's the agreement. Uh, I've also had it go that I've had people who are having an ongoing affair when they come in get treatment from me. Their uh, spouse finds out about it, calls me livid, and says, "Did you know about?" And in those moments, I am really happy to say, I'm sorry to hear this, and I did not know.
4: Mm.
3: And so the breach of trust with me and that client then is rescued or or not breached.
4: Mm.
2: Interesting.
1: Those are really good examples.
2: Do you find doing this type of work that there are situations where you have to tell a client, you know, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't continue to work with you because of issues, you know, let's say stemming from secrets or stemming from Revealing or not revealing information to you that, you know, the other spouse might not know. Are there instances where this comes up where you find I just I'm sorry, I can't continue to work with you?
3: Most often it comes up during the assessment phase mm-hmm. when I find violence gotcha. that would be contraindicated with therapy. Mm-hmm. And in that, then I just don't get started. I tell mm-hmm. people uh, the relationship needs more stability or foundation right? Because mm-hmm. things usually get worse before they get better.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And then it, people are referred into individual therapy.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: But so then I don't get started, which is one of the nice things about having an assessment phase, because then I'm not treating a couple where that is contraindicated. Mm-hmm. So that's the most common way it comes. up. Uh, once people start in therapy, I would say the only times I end therapy that I can think of, are when there's a lack of commitment on one or both partners. And so Mm. people aren't doing the work. People aren't honest in session. People are kind of showing up and sitting in the seat, but nothing is happening. And then I try to give people some time. We're talking about it and saying, okay, I'm seeing, I have some concerns that this is not going to be unhelpful because there's not work being done. What are the blocks to the work being done? So I'll try to be patient and figure that out and try Mm -hmm. to figure that out with people. But if it's clear someone is just being strung along, then I'll say ethically, wow, I've got to be able to feel it's going to be helpful in Mm -hmm. order to take money and continue seeing you. And so uh, so I'm out.
4: Mm
2: -hmm. And along the same lines, one of the most important aspects of working with couples, I would think, is also setting boundaries, Right. And in terms of, again, rules of the game, right, essentially how this is going to work. I'm wondering if you could talk about specific boundaries that you pay attention to when you work with with couples.
3: No, it's an excellent question, because that's essentially uh, a ton of the game with couples is that each couple is their own boundary. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes with couples, they say that their kind of go is the shared reality which gets people in trouble. And so the immediate boundary is saying each person has their own uh, reality, their own experience and their own ideas and wishes, and that's their own. Now, the most common piece that I find myself being pretty careful about is I don't join either one. So uh, oftentimes people say, uh, you know what? My, my partner can't come today. Can I come to the session alone? I'll say, no, nope. uh, I'll see you next time. I'll have people say, you know what? This really bothers me. Wouldn't that bother you too, Heidi? I'll say, wow, uh, that's not my role in here. My role (laughs) is if it bothers you to help you have a conversation with your partner on how it does bother you and what you're looking for instead. So there's a real pull at times to take sides or to switch into a role of individual therapist. Sometimes say, I have this going on. Can I just see you individually? So that boundary gets knocked out. Pretty frequently and then the response is to be able to say it's really my job and my role to have a, a, a neutral and equal alliance so anything that would build a, an alliance with one of you more than another is a boundary that that isn't breached
2: mm-hmm. it's interesting i as you're speaking I'm, I'm thinking back to what you said and i think that this is where again not having the proper training here Right. Is so critical. Like, as you were saying, the the experience the knowledge and the training, because that's a joke with people. I'm an attorney. I I sometimes have adversarial situations. I don't like dealing with it, but not being in a situation like that where you don't know how to handle it. That's the biggest mistake you can make. And similarly in your field, I would think that's one, probably one of the toughest parts of probably doing couples care uh, counseling is how do you keep those boundaries strict and how do you stick to that? And that's a tough I would think unless you've had experience doing that and training, practicing doing that, I can see a lot, you know, a lot of therapists making mistakes there. Um, and that's probably where trouble starts.
3: Oh, lots of trouble starts. I see people uh, all the time who have done therapy as a couple, then done individual. Mm-hmm. And, and right. And sometimes both people do individual and couple with the same person. Mm-hmm. It is a he said, she said mess. Uh, Also, times more commonly times when someone was seeing someone individually really liked them and said, Okay, I want to do couples therapy and the partner comes in that also the alliance uh, most frequently never comes together for that partner who joins.
1: Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking the same thing. You know, you're giving these very clear answers of this is what I do. This is how I do it. You Mm -hmm. know, easy peasy response. Right. But it's only clear cut from you and your answers come across so simple because of that training that you've done. Right. Where these are topics that are really important topics for clinicians to be aware of, to have them in their documentation, even that here and now decision in the room with a client. When someone might put you on the spot, you're able to answer so quickly and so simply to that. But again, I think that that speaks to your training and experience in that area.
3: So, absolutely. The training and experience goes a long way to have comfort and boundaries and, and, and safety in the room. It also is in part just what I continue to do across time. I hold a a weekly consultation group for my practice. So people are case consulting. I run two networking groups a month for therapists and prescribers. So Mm -hmm. MDs, nurse practitioners, and then call right, Don Cole at the Gottman Institute when I run up uh, against issues because he supervised me for license, right, for certification Mm -hmm. with them. And I'll just call up and say, Don, I, I have a situation I haven't come across looking for some of your time. So it's a continued learning curve. There are no two couples that come in alike. There are no two situations alike. Mm -hmm. And so it's consulting it as I go along and asking other people who also do a lot of work with couples across time.
2: It's interesting because what you just emphasized is something that I see come up um, sometimes when I'm talking to, to clinicians is, and I remind them because of a legal trouble you can end up in or ethical trouble you get it's much better if you don't know an answer to know you don't know the answer and if you have to consult with someone which you're allowed to do do so rather than do the wrong thing or give the wrong advice which could have you know really severe consequences so that's a really interesting point
1: yeah so Heidi I'm wondering you know couples counseling is not something that everyone feels inclined to do and people have their own reasons for that. But I'm wondering, what is it about couples counseling that you're drawn to? Well, um,
3: maybe I've been doing too much, of it. it's hard for me to
1: think. About.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> what is that? Which is, um, you know, goes back to why some people might not. <laughs> um,
3: yeah, I would say the thing that draws me to doing couples work is that one is incredibly challenging and so it's really a an engrossing process on my part Mm -hmm. so it moves quickly it's intense there are multiple agendas on the table whereas one person is getting more of what they want the other person is losing more and so that right the look at how that impacts the relationship which is my client is an additional party in the room so there's like a lot of moving parts which make it incredibly interesting and time goes by very quickly. So that's my my current state.
1: Yeah. And in the room, right, like you're outnumbered, right? There's one of you and at least two other people in the room. Uh-huh. So when there are these intense situations, what are you doing to be able to take care of yourself in that moment?
2: So glad you asked that question.
1: <laughs> um,
3: what I'm doing is I'm really. Leaning back into the model that I know, and confidently saying, "All right, what, what's going wrong here? What's happening? Where are we at?" I'm slowing it down, and just making it understandable for myself, and and interjecting, and then uh, just as a, a as a psychologist in the room, I am making sure that I understand what's going on. As long as I understand what's going on, I have a whole tool set of stuff to do. It's a, a means of being able to pretty comfortably uh, match almost anything that's happening in the room. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're asking,
1: Melissa?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to ask a follow-up because one of the things we talked about on other episodes on here is Mm self-care. Okay. And I've recently actually had the opportunity to talk to some practitioners who do trauma, right? And they've talked to me about how it's the impact of when, once you're out of the room, the lingering impact on you is, you know, enough that if you're not doing proper self-care that it's detrimental to your own health to do that therapy. And so I would think that in couples therapy, there is some degree of that as well. And, you know, I guess what I'm, my question is how, what, what do you do to disengage? What do you do to kind of keep your own mental health um, in good shape, you know, stepping away, knowing that you're dealing with very heavy, often very heavy issues and, and topics.
4: So
3: Dan, how I do that is I try to help myself out at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And there are certain couples I do not see. I do not see couples with the loss of a child.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: That for me, I I cannot uh, cannot walk out of the room and leave that in the room. That weighs on my heart and soul in ways I just cannot do. And so I I make sure that the couples that I'm seeing are things that I can leave in the office. So that's the first part of that. The second part of that is I have friends and social support. I have fun. And I travel a lot, a lot of travel uh, where I literally feel like I'm getting away. Good.
2: Yeah, Diane. I
4: am. Mm-hmm.
2: So, yeah, I understand. It. It's, it's really giving yourself a mental health break, right? Yep. To therefore, when you're back in the office, you're as clear headed and able to commit yourself to the processes as possible. Mm-hmm. I get that. That makes total sense.
4: Yeah,
3: I think part of self-care for me, too, is uh, being interested in the work. So the first part of my career, I saw adolescent girls and young women exclusively. Mm -hmm. They had a fantastic time. I think the adolescent process is the most fascinating part of life. And so so part of my piece is just continued learning. So then, right, the switch into couples, learning a whole new method, whole new piece, I think is interesting and fun. And so that's part of what takes care of uh, my mental health in doing Mm -hmm. is just interest. Now right, are looking into polyamory. All right, let's look at what works. Let's figure out what doesn't work. It's interesting.
2: I think it's fascinating to hear that you were looking into that now because I was actually talking to my wife about this recently. and she, she herself is a psychologist and she loves those shows. Like, you know, they're on TV now all about these polyamorous relationships and stuff. She loves watching it. So kill me for saying that. But the point is, though, is I think it's interesting because I don't think that this would have been something that, you know, 30 years ago, people would have been willing to talk about or acknowledge. Um, necessarily, so I think it's interesting to see that people are now comfortable enough with it to be able to talk with someone else about it.
3: Uh, I think one of the huge shifts I've noticed just in the last year is that people are much more open to therapy.
4: Yeah, definitely. I
3: mm-hmm, think COVID cracked it open and destigmatized it some, and so, uh, so yes, what people are uh, open and willing to talk about in therapy, especially when you stick them. Some letters and titles after your name, like sex therapist, people are, are are wanting to talk about things that they want. People are wanting to talk about their sex lives. People want good sex life, and if they don't have it, it's a big deal.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I absolutely agree with the whole therapy is becoming less taboo. Um, I think that's honestly why, at least in our area, for example, you're seeing bunches of practices with just very long waiting lists. Is that you know people are finally are finally recognizing, I think, as a country that this mental health is really important. It's something that's been underutilized, underserviced. Yeah. So that's a very interesting point.
1: And so to transition us to a less interesting topic, <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I'm wondering about is couples therapy and electronic health records, right? So now a lot of people are using EHRs. Um, they're really handy, really practical help with organization Um, And yet recently, even though I do not do couples counseling, um, I've also realized just by doing some research how tricky it can be in terms of working with couples and using EHRs, right? And how you set up your charts. Is there one chart for the couple? If the couple is the client, do you have two of them? If you're using an electronic health record and people are electronically signing, how do you know that each person has signed it, that someone else wasn't signing something on someone else's behalf. And so um, just in doing a little bit of research on my own, I realized just how complicated and tricky EHRs can be for couples counseling. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to that at all, because that could, you know, if there are records requests, it kind of opens up a whole other arena of what is my Mm -hmm. system Is this a good system? Well, so that is one
3: of the things that I regularly Mm -hmm. consult on across Mm -hmm. time. What am I doing now? Will I still do the same thing in the future? But currently, the best plan that I've found so far is that I have a designated person be the client in the EHR, and it's one record. There is a contact person that's listed at the bottom of that first uh, information form and that's the partner's name and then um, in the EHR for each session it states who is at the session so I say client and others and I list the other and so it's clearly that's a it's a it's a unit that's coming in and then and so that's how I'm currently doing it now the piece on are people signing their own forms I think that that's a nightmare and so what I do is In session, when I'm saying, all right, you want me to talk to your individual therapist, or I think it would help me to talk to your individual therapist, I'm going to send each of you a release of information and and looking for you to sign, what are your thoughts on that? In session, I'm looking for each person to say, yes, I'm okay with that, or yep, go ahead, or no, I'm not okay with that. And so I'm relying on, on a verbal to say, yep, when I get that electronic signature back, I believe it is that person's uh, wish for me to call that therapist or or if it's their partner say, yep, you can tell them I'm in couples therapy with them. And so as much as possible in that session, I'm saying uh, on informed consent, have you read that? Do you understand that? We're talking about that in the first session. If somebody says, oh, I didn't get that or, oh, right, my partner just signed for both of us, I'll say, Okay, um let's go through
2: that together right now. I wish you're I could kinda, give you a high five. That, yeah, that so you're is, doing like a double. <laughs> I really do. Cause that this is like what you just said is like something that comes up a lot. And I'm always like, did you get the consent? How did you get the consent? And I think that is the way you described it, I think is probably the safest and best way to do it. Yeah, because
1: it's, mm-hmm. it's really complicated thinking about all those things, electronic signatures and mm-hmm. all of that. And is there one chart or two? And it can be difficult.
2: And I can tell you that the one time that you don't do that, right, that eventually, and, and and this has happened, that's when the issue comes up, right? That's when something goes wrong. That's when it's going to get found out, and then it's going to be a problem. And, and and it's happened. I've seen it. And yeah. was like, "I only did it once." I'm like, "That's all it takes." <laughs>
3: that's all it takes. Um, I thought it was litigious seeing people's adolescence, uh, right? Uh, but wow, seeing couples much much more risk in the room with me that I am aware of. Uh, one person, uh, right? If if they feel that their agenda is minimized or uh, their agenda is called out as right a lie, right deception is caught. Absolutely, it's a piece I'm very aware of in the room mm-hmm. that there's risk in seeing a couple because if one person wins and the other loses, that can cause somebody to come after me.
2: Mm-hmm. 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 I have a quick question, and you may say this is not present at all. And, and this is going to reflect badly on, on us as attorneys, but we already have a bad reputation, so it's fine. Um, I wonder it, it, seeing couples, is there ever a time where couples have come to you to do therapy, but there are attorneys in the background, let's say on either side representing them in their separation? And it to, have you found that that makes it diff, more difficult to do therapy because there is someone else kind of whispering in the client's ears, even if it's well intentioned?
3: I'd say probably half of what I do, people are either considering filing or have already filed yeah. so that there are attorneys uh, in the room is pretty common
4: mm-hmm.
3: okay what i tell couples is that when you have attorneys in the room it, essentially what it means is i see it as playing poker
4: yeah. they're
3: at the table with us they have a hand and they're playing their hand
4: mm-hmm.
3: and so it's the more people sitting down at the table and the more hands being played the more complicated the game becomes yeah and so I I try to uh, convince people to say put a put a hold on it. Commit to therapy for mm-hmm. six months. If you get somewhere, great. If you do not get somewhere, then uh, go back at it. Now, people always get to decide for themselves. And I've had couples say that feels too risky for me to put it on hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, having my attorney is the only safety I feel in the world right now. And I will I can't do it. Then I'll say all right. Here's some downsides of doing that. And as long as both people say, you know what, we'll go forward with a lack of commitment, uh, right? Keeping the -hmm. the attorney on payroll. I'll say, okay, I'm in too. And so we just talk about it and and what it brings up. And as it comes through, then it becomes uh, part of the topic of therapy.
4: Great answer.
1: So Heidi, if people wanted to get in touch with you to learn more about your trainings, consultation services, or your counseling services, how can they find you? My website is the easiest, which is enrichcenter.org. And on that note, one more question coming to mind, and it's kind of where we started is, you know, you had mentioned that sometimes people advertise that they have training in a particular modality for treating couples and they don't necessarily. So for anyone listening who maybe is a therapist themselves and they're looking for couples counseling, or maybe they're interested in doing couples counseling themselves and providing that service. Are there any recommendations for just gleaning or gathering information about people's actual training for people who are looking to decipher between people who truly have the training or people who are maybe the people that you were Describing earlier.
3: If you're a consumer and you're looking for a therapist to see you, then I'm encouraging the consumer to ask a lot of questions. I encourage people to ask me a ton of questions when we're seeing if it's a good fit. Mm-hmm. And so, questions of what is your clinical training? So, I'll, I'll chat about being a uh, clinical psychologist, specific training to do a couple's work. I'll say, here's the three levels of Gottman therapy. You can go to the Gottman Institute. If people are trained in other modalities then they're right. They can say, here's my training. Here's the, uh, the levels of that training. Here's where, who I received that training from. So I'd encourage people ask a lot of questions, just like you would, if you're going to a, a medical doctor or a dentist or an attorney, mm-hmm. you're saying how much experience do you have treating great right, people or what training? So it's just asking questions about it. I also try again on my website and through my informed consent to list that it, Right under our bios, we're saying, here's the training that we have. And so the consumer can more easily look and say, OK, that's why they're advertising as they are. Or that's.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And so for anyone who did not catch Heidi's website, we're going to include that in the link in our bio and in our description below the episode.
2: About wraps it up for us here. We thank you for listening. And Heidi, we truly thank you for joining us today. For those, of course, who want to reach out to us, as always, you can reach out to us on our Facebook page. You can go to our webpage. Um, We do want to hear from you guys. If you guys have an interesting anecdote of your own or you have a question or a comment, we want to hear it. But other than that, we thank you again and we will talk to you guys soon. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit ProtectingYourPractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.